Now that this week in history is history, it's time to sit back, relax, and relive the week that was in U.S. history class. Coming to you live from 185, Mr. Palumbo is ready to take you on a journey into the past to understand the present and change the future. This is Pushcast. Hello and welcome to the Pushcast. For this last week of February 2019, I am Eric Palumbo, and this week we'll be discussing uh, migrations and Americans on the move. Um, the week that was in U.S. history uh, was cut a little bit short with that uh, wind day we had on Monday, uh, but the, the four days we had in class were productive ones, um, and, uh, and thanks for joining uh, so you can review and uh, relive that week that was. Um, so on Tuesday, uh, we started with a, a topic that was um, that's a little bit heavy for uh, for you guys. Uh, you know, we gave some you know some warnings in class here. The stuff we're going to be covering is is uh, is a little bit deep, um, is a little bit heavy. Um, it's uh, you know kind of a darker history um, in the United States, but um, it's a history that that needs to be talked about, that needs to be learned about. Um, and better understood uh, to help us, um, you know, as we say in the in the intro there, to not just better understand the past, but to understand the present. Um, so, so we dove into it. Uh, we dove into it with the knowledge that um, it could be tough for some folks, but that uh, we're confident and that um, we know what we we're doing, know what we we're talking about, and we can handle these this lesson with the sensitivity that and, and maturity that it needed. Um, the lesson itself um, is one that revolved. Um, around symbols. Uh, this is a, a lesson I started doing uh, a couple of years ago, uh, just based on some, you know, conversations nationally and some conversations locally, and just thinking that there was a, a gap in knowledge uh, that needed to get filled in, you know, to help out to help out everybody. So the symbols that we're looking at were some controversial ones, uh, ones that you know people need to understand the, the meaning of and the history of, um, ones that um, can lead to some hurt. Um, in some communities when uh, there's a lack of knowledge and understanding of the meaning of them, and particularly in our case, the history of them. Um, the symbols that we looked at uh, revolved around um, some of the history of, uh, of hate in America. Uh, we looked at the Confederate flag a little bit. Uh, we looked at the image of the noose, uh, the KKK hood, um, you know, what that those images uh, symbolize, and specifically for our class and our purposes, the history of them and tying them back to our content um, and our curriculum, all right, to make sure what we're learning about was relevant uh, for class, uh, but also um, important things that people and students and you guys should know about today. So we looked at was uh, a bit of the history of uh, lynchings in the South and that, that painful history, that painful chapter in American history. Um, it's one that we're seeing the education about it, um, seeing a resurgence of it today. Uh, there's a fantastic new uh, museum uh, down in Alabama uh, devoted to the, the learning of this dark chapter in American history. Um, and we looked at some examples today in our, our modern society where some folks have not been very sensitive in the use of either the image imagery uh, from that time period or, or the words and terms, you know, lynching uh, associated with it. Um, so we looked at some of those modern examples of the misuse and the insensitivity of some of those uses. Uh, there's an example, not to get in deep into all these, but there's an example uh, with Tiger Woods on the PGA Tour, golf commentator, you know, used that term uh, in a joking manner um, as, as a suggestion of how younger players can stop Tiger Woods. You know, she said, um, 
you know, maybe players can, you know, go out in the back alley and lynch them, you know, she said with a laugh. And the students, and you guys are students, uh, understandably cringed and, uh, you know, kind of made, you know, their their thoughts known about that pretty audibly when, when she said that. Um, knowing that uh, what she said was wrong after you guys had learned the history of it and knowing that uh, the woman that said it, Kelly Tillman, um, probably didn't have as good an understanding of the history um, of that term and of that movement as as you guys now have um, after having had this lesson on it. So that's just a good lesson in general about the importance of of knowing your history, of, of knowing other people's histories, uh, so you can be sensitive uh, to that fact and understand what words and terms are acceptable to use, which ones aren't, um, and to use them properly. Um, and to not joke about, um, you know, certain aspects of our history, uh, that some of these words and terms are really heavy and they mean a lot to people in America and that they shouldn't be used and misused. So that was that lesson that helped build on a little bit. I know it was our first day back from break and it was really a heavy, um, kind of lesson to do. Um, but it fit in, uh, I think well with our, uh, curriculum that we're covering. Um, it also fit in well with some current national discussions, uh, students brought up, we had good discussions in every class about, um, about blackface and the history of that. Um, you know, we talked a little about the, the history of it um, and why it's you know, so inappropriate. And we showed uh, some of the news uh, clippings and some of the news uh, stories um, you know, going down in Virginia around that controversy uh, since that's come up nationally. Um, and again, anytime we can bring in some current issues um, and talk about their historical significance, especially uh, when they line up with the curriculum that we're talking about at the time, um, we're certainly going to take time out of class uh, to do that and talk about those those worthwhile and worthy lessons. That lesson we had, that kind of concluded uh, a unit, if you will, on um, Reconstruction, the South, and after Reconstruction, the Jim Crow era, you know, understanding uh, some of the issues that are going on down there during that time period, and which led us to our, our next uh, mini unit uh, that we had, just a couple of days on migrations, movements within the country. And the first migration that we looked at um, was the Great Migration. Um, so we did this one on purpose the day after we did uh, that heavy lesson on, on lynching and the imagery of the, of the Deep South. Um, the reason why we did the, the Great Migration then um, is because it gave us uh, a good example for uh, a new term that we had. Um, anytime you look at migrations and the movement of people uh, in history and in social studies, uh, we always look at the reasons why people move. Um, so the, the new vocab word that we had for that day was great migration, uh, the movement of um, large numbers of African Americans from the south up to the northern cities. Um, and we did uh, just some very basic work with the who, what, where, and when um, of that new term. Uh, the most important question, obviously, that we have in history is why. Why do people move? Um, and the those negative aspects of, of Southern culture and Southern society that we had looked at previously, segregation, Jim Crow laws, lynchings, gave us examples of motivations we call push factors. Things that cause people to move from where they are. Reasons that why people want to leave uh, a place where they live. Um, so those are all uh, examples to use that are push factors, things that are pushing uh, African Americans out of the South, things that they want to get away from. We also looked at uh, the opposite of that, things that are known as pull factors, things that pull people to the new place. What does that new place have to offer that I want to go towards? With that, uh, we looked at some documents and some statistics. Um, we looked at some personal stories, um, some letters, 
uh, that some African Americans had written uh, about their reasons for wanting to go north. Um, and most of those revolved around economic reasons, new jobs in these cities in the north, uh, better living standards in these cities in the north rather than living in a, an agricultural setting. Uh, you can live in a city, you know, an apartment building, something like that. And better education. Um, almost every single uh, letter that we looked at or example of correspondence from folks that went from south to north, you know, people that are old enough, uh, they almost all cited uh, better educational opportunities for their kids. So things like jobs, educational opportunities, living standards, those are all pull factors. Um, so the Great Migration um, has excellent examples of push and pull factors. So that's what we took care of on, on Wednesday, and we better understood that. Um, to, to culminate that activity, we did uh, a chart. Uh, we had a map of the United States, and we put pull factors on the northern half of the map, push factors on the southern half of the map. Uh, we listed uh, four of those factors for each. We had um, you guys as students, you illustrated um, a scene um, of why some folks would want to leave the south and why some folks would want to go to the north. Uh, the following day, we d uh, continued with our uh, mini unit on migrations, the movement of people. Um, and now we looked at the movement of people to the West. Um, while chronologically, um, you know, we could have done this one first before uh, the Great Migration, um, because of the connection that it had with those, those push factors to get out of the South, we decided to do Great Migrations first. So we did the, the, the following day, we did uh, Westward Migration, people moving to the West. Um, we'd already covered um, the unit on Manifest Destiny and Westward Expansion, so we called back some images from that, some maps. You know, we're able to review the term manifest destiny, wanting to spread to the West um, and own all the land from the Atlantic to the Pacific uh, and to spread, you know, American greatness. But we looked at how that, that was different. That was just acquiring all that land. What you need to do now, though, in order to have the country actually hold that land and make it our own is to put people there. Uh, so peopling the land is, is a verb that's used uh, in geography. So having people actually move out there and state claims um, and have Americans live there um, is what's really needed uh, for America to expand west and to hold that territory. The pull factor, uh, the thing that we looked at that made people want to go to the west uh, was the Homestead Act. Uh, the Homestead Act, a law passed in 1862 by Abraham Lincoln. You know, so we're going back in time here a little bit. But that incentivized people uh, to want to go to the West. Gave them 160 acres of land uh, for a small fee. All you had to do was promise to live on the land for at least five years. Uh, you had to make improvements to the land. You had to build a structure on it, a house of some sort. Um, and you had to farm the land. As long as you did that, um, at the end of the five years, uh, that land became yours permanently. Um, we looked at the provisions of the Homestead Act and that it allowed um, large groups of people uh, for the first time to own their own land. Immigrants, single women, um, African Americans, former slaves were able to take advantage of the Homestead Act and, and get plots of land for themselves um, and move out to the West and fill in that territory. Um, with that, though, there are consequences. Um, we asked, you know, we looked at the idea for you guys of well, who's already out there? This isn't totally empty land. Um, and everyone's able to come up with the idea that natives lived out there already. Um, there were gigantic herds of buffalo that live out there already on the Great Plains. So this isn't totally empty land. Um, so we had to look at, you know, while the Homestead Act, Homestead Act is a great thing and it's a positive and gave people wonderful opportunities, uh, we had to look at some of the negative consequences of it. 
Um, what are the consequences on the Native Americans? What's the consequence on the, the buffalo population that's already living there? Um, to understand that, um, again, we looked at some historical statistics, some images. Uh, first, we studied uh, the, the Plains Indians' uses for buffalo. We use the imagery of imagining the Great Plains that, you know, there's really just nothing out there. Um, so it's like living in the middle of a gigantic basketball court. You know, there's really no resources. It's just kind of empty, open, flat land. Um, and so the, the Plains Indians that live out there, the only way that they can get the necessities of life, you know, food, clothing, and shelter, uh, are from the buffalo. The buffalo is the only other, you know, major, you know, living mammal, living organism that's out on the plains that you can get those resources from. So we have a chart that shows just basically, you know, teeth to tail, every single uh, little part of the buffalo um, is used by the Plains Indians um, to sustain life. And then we contrast that with uh, hunters and settlers, their uses for the buffalo. Uh, we showed photographs from the time period of, of hunters sitting atop giant piles of, or, 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 or skins of buffalo, hides of buffalo. Uh, we showed photographs of giant 30, 40, 40 foot tall uh, mountains of skulls, buffalo skulls. Um, and just contrasting that with, with the waste um, of that buffalo versus the use uh, for the Plains Indians. You know, the, the hunters and the settlers um, are just killing buffalo to get their skins and to get sell their hides for, you know, 2 $3 a piece. And those pictures show us that, uh, you know, these hunters, you know, killed buffalo on this massive scale. Um, but we wanted to look at some data, some numbers to actually support that. So um, we looked at a chart of buffalo population from 1800 to 1890. Um, with a bunch of selected years in the middle, like every 10 years or so. And we found that in 1800, uh, the buffalo population um, in America uh, was around 40 million buffalo uh, in, in uh, America at the time. Um, and then we see steadily those numbers decline, decline all the way until 1890, uh, when there's estimated less than 1,000. So from 40 million buffalo to under 1,000 um, in less than a century. Um, so you know, decimation of the buffalo on, on just a huge scale. Um, and then we needed to see what was the impact of that on the native population. You know, that's the only place where they were able to get, you know, their main resources to survive. And now it's gone. So we looked at a chart of the same years, 1800, 1890, you know, broken up every 10 years, uh, the Native American population in the United States. Um, and while the decline wasn't the same, obviously, uh, there was still a decline in the population. Uh, where there was less than half the number of Native Americans living in America um, in 1890 than there were in 1800. Um, so, you know, a real steady decline in Native population as well that you could line up and match it with the decline of the buffalo. And our final piece of evidence we looked at, our final diagram, was the number of Indian reservations built in the West. Because um, the, the government had you know, basically a problem on its hands, a humanitarian crisis. You have all these Plains Indians now with no resources, right? No place to gain food, uh, clothing, or shelter. Um, so reservations are made um, in the West and the Southwest um, to, to house these, these Native tribes. They really had nowhere to go um, to survive. So, you know, the Army in, in America uh, puts them onto reservations um, and keeps them there. Um, you know, a more in-depth study can be done, you know, if you're interested more in, in this Native history, you can look at, you know, what's done to them on the reservations, attempts to um, assimilate them into American culture at times, and um, kind of the resistance from some Native tribes in doing that, 
Um, that's a really interesting study. It's a little in depth um, for our purposes and uh, you know the time we have to cover things. But um, you know it's a fascinating history to look at um, just on its own. And then finally, um, you know the last day of the week, uh, which is today, we reviewed all of that. You know, so we did a warm up and reviewed all of that. We had a map of the United States with a bunch of images uh, from the past number of weeks, really scattered about. Um, and we had, um, you know, you guys, you moved the images um, all over the map of the United States. So, you know, where, what region of the U.S., north, south, east, or west, um, are these images associated with? So we had those images of the, the buffalo hides and the buffalo skulls, images of teepees, uh, posters for the Homestead Act. You know, all those images were moved and placed in the west. Uh, we had um, images showing uh, Jim Crow laws, segregated uh, drinking fountains and benches. Uh, we had a copy of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, those Reconstruction Amendments, um, some political cartoons that we looked at illustrating Reconstruction. Um, all those images were dragged to the south. Um, and once those were all sorted out, um, we looked at what area of the map is still blank, which area of the map is still open. Um, and that was the north, particularly the north and the east. Um, and that region, uh, we explained, is where we're going to set our focus next. Uh, the reason why we did that mapping activity, um, I think oftentimes in history um, and in social studies, you know, we cover a lot of different topics and we move on and it'll take, you know, a couple of weeks or, you know, a month to, to cover a few different things. And it seems like we're, you know, zipping through time as we're covering all this stuff. But when really a lot of these big important things that we're talking about that we separate into, you know, break into little units, um, they're all happening at the same time. Um, so it's kind of tough to imagine. So that's why I had to put them all on a map at the same time together. So, you know, at the same time that, um, you know, segregation laws and you know, Jim Crow is being enforced in the South, um, Americans are setting up their homesteads in the West. Uh, the same time the Buffalo population is being decimated uh, on the plains. Um, you know, African-Americans are starting to move North, you know, during the great migration. So um, it's kind of tough to imagine sometimes that, you know, all that's happening all at once. But, um, you know, that map activity helps to show it. Um, so with our, our focus on the North and the East uh, during this time period, um, we're able to do a, a good uh, little review on uh, the Industrial Revolution, what that means, what's that's, what that's all about, and how in particular that's going to affect um, the American North. Um, the Industrial Revolution happened, you know, globally around this time period, you know, from like the end of the Civil War, 1865, up to the early 1900s is really the time period that we're looking at uh, for all these different topics. Um, and, and what we wanted to look at today was specifically the concept of wealth, all the money that's going to be flowing into that region. You know, I drew a big dollar sign uh, over that open space in the Northeast there that didn't have any images over it. And, and before we got into the, the historical um, concept of wealth, you know, it's going to be pouring into that, to that area uh, during this time period, um, I wanted... Um, you guys to have a, a, a modern reference point uh, for wealth. So uh, we looked at the top five richest Americans uh, today and had students see if you guys could guess who the top five richest Americans were. Um, you guys generally got, so most classes got three out of the five. So you got Jeff Bezos, the number one richest person in America, uh, founder of Amazon. Uh, Bill Gates, number two, the founder of Microsoft. Uh, number three, most people didn't know, uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, number four, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the founder of Facebook. And number five, Larry Ellison, uh, the founder of a software company, computer company, Oracle. Um, so seeing how many billions of dollars these guys are worth. You know, Jeff Bezos, $136 billion. Bill Gates, $98.5 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, $64 billion that they're worth. 
Um, so I wanted to put that wealth into perspective. Um, so when we start talking, you know, next week about some of the, the super mega wealthy industrialists of the time period, of the Gilded Age, of the Industrial Age, uh, we can put that into modern perspective. And so we'll put those people side by side. One thing that everyone noticed about that list of the top five wealthiest people in America today uh, was that they were all founders of their companies. They all started their companies. They all had an idea. Uh, they took advantage of the time, uh, for the most part, the computer age, internet age, technology. Um, they kind of got on the ground floor on some certain industries and, and founded companies that grew to tremendous wealth. Um, and hopefully we're going to be able to see that same similarity, make that same connection um, to the ultra-wealthy industrialists um, of the time period that we're going to be looking at uh, starting next week. Um, so, you know, we use Friday the last day of the week to kind of, you know, have some fun, look in some modern wealth and, you know, make some comparisons. Uh, we watched a clip of, from Ellen of Bill Gates trying to guess, you know, the, the price of different grocery items. Cause you know, God knows when's the last time he went to a grocery store or, you know, made pizza rolls or bought laundry detergent, did his own laundry, you know? So, uh, we had fun looking at that and showing that, uh, you know, how much smarter we are than Bill Gates when it comes to, uh, simple concepts like that. But it set the stage for us to start looking at, uh, you know, mega wealth of this this time period uh, for the Northeast, the Industrial Age, um, and the Gilded Age, a term that we're going to introduce on Monday and what that means. Um, so that, that kind of wraps up the, the discussion for the week. Um, it was a little bit disjointed, you know, kind of going all over, going from, you know, symbols of, you know, hate uh, in America to, you know, the Great Migration to the Homestead Act and the destruction of Buffalo to... Um, industrialization and the Gilded Age in the North. Uh, but the key that tied them all together was the era, the time period. Um, and understanding that this is a time period of great change in America when all these things um, are happening really at the same time. Um, so, so keeping those, those straight and what's going on in the different you know, geographic regions of the country. With that, I'll say thank you very much uh, for listening and tuning in uh, for this first week back from break, a four-day week. Um, we look forward to uh, seeing everybody on Monday and uh, jumping into a new unit. Uh, finally, I'd like to give a, a final shout-out and uh, good luck uh, to the boys' sectional team on Saturday morning. The Blue Cross Saran not going to be able to get there. Um, and also for uh, all the, the cast and crew uh, of the musical. The Music Man's going to be playing this weekend. hope to get out there Sunday uh, afternoon to check that out. Uh, thanks for listening and uh, logging on. Hopefully you subscribe uh, so you get all the updates. And uh, we'll see you later. Bye-bye. You've enjoyed this look back into the week that was in U.S. history. The goal, as always, is to be enlightened. If not enlightened, at least entertained. And if not entertained, at least not annoyed. Now go grab that PS4 or Xbox, jump on Snap, Twitter, or Insta, and keep those freaks alive. While there, follow Mr. P on Twitter at Mr. P underscore Newark. And remember, this isn't just his story or her story, it's your story too.